0: Before we get into it. If you've been here for a while or you know me at all, uh, you know that I'm, I'm not a person that enjoys conflict. I don't enjoy uh, being in it personally. Uh, I don't enjoy uh, being around it, you know, when especially with personal stuff. I mean, I like watching American football, it has a lot of conflict in it, but it's, it's kind of within a certain, you know, it's an expectation. For example, I used to have a friend of mine. Uh, he kind of liked conflict. It was—I str- found it very odd to be around him. Uh, one time we were at a dinner; we were just having uh, lunch together, and uh, in the booth next to us—or not right next to us, but over the way—you could hear. The conversation, you know, usually in a restaurant, you get this is kind of the buzz of conversation. And then all of a sudden this over here went, and it started to go up and we realized, uh oh, these two are going at it. And uh, and for me, that kind of public conflict thing, that's what I hate. I'm just like, oh man. And so I just tried to ignore it and continue the conversation. This friend of mine goes, Shh, 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 stop. He's like listening. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, listen, they're, they're having a fight. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't want to sit there and listen. He goes, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> this is like dinner in a show. You know? <laughs> and I just, I looked at him and I said, wow, I just do not relate to that. That uh, sense of like enjoying being in the conflict. And I especially don't like it at church. Uh, I know that after all these years of being a pastor and just being involved in a church, you know, I, I should get used to the idea that sometimes there's going to be conflict. And actually, not all conflict is bad. Uh, we're going to look at today an example of a conflict that actually ends up being good for the church, but I don't like it. And uh, I, I find my, I have a very idealistic notion of the church. You'd think after decades of being a, a believer and being, in, especially in leadership, some of that idealism may have passed away. But I have a very idealistic kind of, You know, let's all just be happy, happy, happy together like all the time. And that's just not reality. That's not the way it is. And uh, so I find conflict hard to deal with. But the passage that we're looking at today is one where church conflict is giving a surprisingly open airing. And this is a conflict which is between two very prominent leaders in the church at the time it was taking place and also historically. And that is between... The Chief Apostle Peter and Paul. And in this conflict that we're going to be looking at today, Paul is really the one that's taking Peter to task because he disagrees with something that Peter is doing, and we'll get into that later on. But I have to say going into this is I kind of feel for Peter. You know, Peter is not the most he's not he's a very intelligent guy. When you read the letters first and second Peter, you understand that, Peter was a sharp guy, but he wasn't, he wasn't the, sophi- the sophisticated, educated theologian that the Apostle Paul was. And the Apostle Paul came from academia. You know, he, he studied at the feet of this rabbi named Gamaliel. He was a well-known uh, up-and-comer among, Jude- among the Jews of his generation. Peter was a fisherman. He was a fisherman that was called by Christ. He was probably a very good natural leader. Uh, later on, kind of developed his theology. But we know from the Gospels, Peter would say stupid things. He would say things that, that you know, you just kind of go, oh, Peter, what are you thinking? Uh, he had with the, uh, if you're a veterinarian, there's a disease called hoof and mouth disease. And we'd say Peter had foot and mouth disease. He would open up his mouth, insert foot by saying something that just made no sense at all. But he becomes this person. I think that one of the reasons why Peter is beloved is because within his failures, and he has them repeatedly, he has a heart that always comes back to Christ. And he very much is passionately sold out for Christ. He just sometimes finds himself caught in the middle. And in this case, where we're going to read the passage today, he's very much caught in the middle of this argument that we've talked about that was in the early church. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, going through Galatians. We've talked about how difficult it was for people to understand, especially the Jewish believers. The church grows out of Judaism. Those first believers were all Jewish, and they had a very hard time understanding, comprehending, believing, accepting that people who were non-Jews, which are called Gentiles, people who are non-Jews could in fact become believers, followers of Christ, and receive the Holy Spirit. They had a very difficult time with this. I can't overemphasize how difficult this was. And if you read the book of Acts, and you read through the the letters of Paul and Peter and John even, you see that this is an issue that is... Probably the main issue of the early church. And it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. It's not something that they took care of in one meeting and things were done. They would. You read uh, Galatians, the first two chapters, the Apostle Paul is giving a lot of biographical information. You, you read that this thing seems to be resolved, then it comes back. It seems to be resolved, then it comes back. And you're reading the same thing in the book of Acts. It's not really until Acts chapter 15 that is finally does it seem that even the apostle Peter comes down firmly on what he teaches and believes about it and even after that we get a sense in the letters it was always kind of brewing underneath the surface could non Jews receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah because Jesus let's not forget Jesus was Jewish and he there's an expectation among some that before you could receive salvation you had to first Become Jewish, which for men meant being circumcised, for women meant being baptized. So men, literally, had more skin in the game than uh, than women. So let's read this passage, and talk about it. So just kind of give you uh, remind you where you're where we're at. Paul has just finished writing about his second journey to Jerusalem. So he went three years after his conversion. Uh, and then he kind of goes uh, and he goes to Tarsus for a while. He comes to Antioch. He's there for a while. And then he comes back to Jerusalem 14 years later. And in that return to Jerusalem, he and Barnabas had been working with both Jews and non Jews and seeing people come to Christ. And let's not forget that Peter was actually the first one that. that uh witnessed a, non, a non-Jew coming to Christ, this happens in Acts chapter 10, he goes and he speaks to this Roman centurion named Cornelius, and Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit of God, becomes a believer, but Peter uh, has to then defend his actions right away in chapter 11, and the group, that the, the way that they're referred to as is the circumcised group, And what they're talking about there are people who are Jews who've become believers, and they are the ones struggling with this idea. And uh, both Peter and Paul, well, Paul mostly in the book of Acts, they refer to them as the circumcised group. So that's who they're talking about. And Paul goes to uh, Jerusalem with Barnabas. They think they've got this all worked out. And then the very next verse after he says, we went back after we got this worked out, uh, verse 11, it picks up and it says this, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So Paul has gone down to Jerusalem with this fellow named Barnabas. They talked about the Gentiles becoming believers. It looked like everything was fine. They went back to Antioch, but things were not fine because Peter began to kind of vacillate on whether or not he should be as a Jew hanging out with the Gentiles. And so he began to pull back. And this is what the Apostle Paul, then he comes to Antioch, and the Apostle Paul is going to make sure that he doesn't bring this teaching into the church. So right away, he opposes him. He says, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And it seems that James was very much kind of in the camp of you should, be, you should hang on to your Jewishness while you're a believer in Christ. And so there was a there was a conflict here. Before certain men came from James, he, being Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And Barnabas was was Paul's friend, Barnabas was the one that went out of his way to bring Paul from obscurity into prominence within the church. He says, even Barnabas was led astray. They were confused. They got confused again by, well, should we stay within the customs of uh, of our Jewishness in order to follow Christ? Then Paul continues, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, I don't know if this is really the best way to deal with conflict, but this is how Paul dealt with it. I said with Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If then, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what, was destro- what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now last week we talked about how the emphasis that Paul wants to make to the Galatians is that the cross is enough. The cross of Jesus Christ is enough for salvation. It's not the cross plus keeping the law or the cross plus following certain rituals. It's the cross. The cross is enough. And the Galatians are walking away from this. They are being pulled back by this very argument about whether or not you should follow the the Jewish traditions before becoming believers. And he said, he's writing to them saying, this has been dealt with a long time ago. And in fact, I had to deal with it even with the apostle Peter. Peter the chief apostle, and he makes an argument here, and it can be kind of difficult to follow at first because he says a lot of things. I'm not so sure if this is really how he just did in this argument with Peter, if he said all this so clearly and concisely because this would be a pretty deep thing to just roll off your tongue uh, on a sort of spontaneous way. I think he, like a lot of us, sort of thought through what he had said and, and kind of condensed things because he makes a very... Sophisticated but somewhat difficult argument here. And if you find Peter Paul difficult to follow, you're in good company. Because even Peter found Paul difficult to follow. And Peter wrote about it. In Second Peter, the letter that Peter is writing, after uh, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, and it's taking longer. And this is after the famous phrase, you know, for the Lord a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Peter writes this. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, <laughs> which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures. To their own destruction. So Peter is pretty candid here. He's like, you know, sometimes Paul's hard to follow, and it's okay that he's hard to follow. But he says, but he does speak with wisdom. He speaks with wisdom to the church. So we're going to go through this uh, passage here and kind of break down what it is that Paul is saying. Because again, I find it interesting that even though these apostles, especially the like Peter, people who had lived with, taught by saw and witnessed the life of christ the ministry of christ the death burial and resurrection of christ the ascension of christ and paul who witnessed the resurrected christ during his uh, trip to the road to damascus that even though these were first generation people who had powerfully uh, felt the presence of the holy spirit come upon them in pentecost who had seen miracles take place and themselves performed miracles yet they still had conflict and difficulty within the church does that surprise you Yeah, I find it a little surprising. You know, I would like to think, well, surely that close to the source, they shouldn't be having any problems. I find it both uh, a little bit surprising, maybe disappointing, but in a weird way, kind of assuring too. I mean, if they still struggled, I mean, of course we're going to struggle. And it's okay. It's okay for us to struggle as long as we, within that conflict, have some fruit come from it, which is what happened with this conflict between Peter and Paul. Fruit came from it, and the fruit was forcing Paul to really be the theologian for the church and deal with this issue, whether how a person comes to the Lord. Can a person come to the Lord without first going through rituals? Is it by faith, or is it by works? Is it by faith, or is it by rituals? How is it? Paul has to deal with it because of the conflict. So let's break down, let's break down this passage a little bit. To understand what Paul's saying here, uh, I'm going to talk a lot about stuff, and I'm not going to have time to give you all the scriptural references to it. If you're interested in knowing all the scriptural references, uh, you can always watch this on YouTube and figure it out. But uh, but I will tell you what they are. Most of them just come from Romans. And it starts with how Paul understands the law. And when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the law of Moses given, given to the Jewish people by God through Moses. And he sees that the law given to Moses by God is good. The law is not evil. The law does not cause people to do evil. However, the law requires perfection. If you are going to follow the law and be within the, the righteousness of God, within the glory of God. Remember the word glory means to have your uh, one's character or the character of God in this case revealed so that you fully really see what they're like. And the scripture tells us that we are we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means that ourself as we are fully revealed because the law exposes within us our shortcomings as who we are is fully revealed, it falls short of how God's character and nature is revealed. There's a gap, and that gap is in place because of sin, because of all the effects of sin. And we are both affected by sin and participate in sin. And in the Bible, these are kind of overlapping concepts. They're the sins that you are affected by, but you don't participate in. You know, we live in a world, for example, that has a lot of corporate greed or things like this, uh, political, uh, you know, machinations which lead to to fights and, and stuff going on in the world that is horrible. And you can say, well, I'm not directly involved in that. You don't participate in that. Well, you might not, but you're affected by it. There's the sin of the world that you're affected by. Then there's the sin that you participate in. Sometimes those overlap because if you participate in sin, you're also affected by that sin. But there are things that you don't participate in, but you're still affected. I and mean, if, if you've ever been a victim of crime, you're not necessarily participating in the crime, but you're being affected by the attitudes that led to that. And this is what the law does. The law exposes those places of our failure. And this is why the law of God is is different than, say, you know, codes of conduct that you've seen that we've seen throughout history. Like, for example, there's this thing called the Code of Hammurabi. Have many have you ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? He was this king that was actually around before the time of Moses, and a lot of people point out that in the civil code that he is given credit for writing, there's a lot in common with the Ten Commandments, things like don't murder, don't steal you know, don't do these things. But that code of Hammurabi, it comes from humanity. And because it comes from us, there's within it already a brokenness. There's already within that law, injustice kind of baked in. And we see it with the laws that that our countries make. And throughout the the years, we've put laws into place sometimes, which are actually unjust toward a certain people group, or unjust toward a certain, you know, background. And so, Human laws always have within it the same sin that's broken in general, but the law of God didn't have that. The law of God given through Moses was righteous and was pure. Now, of course, as humanity gets involved and starts trying to interpret that law, sometimes things go sideways. But Paul says the law isn't bad, but what the law does is it exposes sin. And In fact, in his own life, he said, he uses the example of coveting, which means to want something, to be jealously desirous of something else that a person has. And Paul says, I didn't even know what it meant to covet. I never had a desire to covet. I never thought about wanting something that someone else had. Until the law said, do not covet, then sin working in me made me want to want everything that everyone else had. The sin within me made me want to covet. And I and, and wasn't even aware of it until the law made him aware that he shouldn't do it. And then sin goes, well, now I'm going to do it. It's like a kid, a little child, when you say, you can't do something, then that's what they want to do. We're not all that different from little children. It's just as adults we've learned to put filters over it so we appear to be mature. But let me tell you, underneath those filters, mm. and so this is what he's saying. He's saying, this law is never going to make us righteous. All the law really does is expose to us our unrighteousness. And so then he's talking about, then he says, you know, he he refers to Gentile sinners because the ones to whom this law were given are the Jews. And we know this story from the Old Testament. It's given to the Jewish people through Moses. And what it exposed is that even if you have the law of God to follow, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our rebelliousness still makes it impossible to follow this law. We may have it. We know it. But we still break it. And as soon as you break that law, you are out of step with the perfect righteousness of God. And if you're out of step with the perfect righteousness of God, then you fall short of his glory. And this is why Paul says the wages of sin is death. Because you fall short of that glory of God. And he says, and all of us are affected by it. All have sinned and fall short of this glory. And this is the place that we're in. Now to the Gentiles the way a Jewish person would think about them was they don't even have the law. They have nothing to follow. They, from the get-go, are in a place of hopelessness. I mean, at least the Jewish people had a law that they could try to cling to. The Gentiles don't even have that. And that's why he calls them Gentile sinners. They're people born without any hope at all. They don't even have the law to cling to. And so when he talks to Peter, he says, he says this, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. And he's not saying this is bad. He's actually saying this is what you're doing, and this is good. Because you are learning to live by faith, not by your heritage, not by your rituals, not by your religion. But you're living by your relationship with God. You are living with people who are also Gentiles who don't have this heritage and faith, you're living with them. How is it then that you want the Gentiles to come back to our customs? You yourself don't live by our customs anymore because you're now living by faith. And yet you've gotten yourself confused in this argument and now you want the Gentiles to live by our customs. And he goes, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we have this, by birth we have this law. They don't even have the law. If we who have the law know that a man's not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, then why are we trying to bring these folks back under the law? That's his argument that he's making. Imagine, if you're still having a hard time following it, imagine this. Imagine that you are, you find yourself one day in a boat. And as you look around this ocean, you see that it's full of people who are drowning. And they're fighting it. Sometimes they make a little raft, but the draft always sinks. But they're just drowning all around you. And you're on this boat, and you look around, and your family's on this boat. And you're like, huh, awesome. We're on a boat. And you're told that this boat can take you to safety. It can take you to life. It can take you to, to righteousness. This boat can take you everywhere. It's called the SS Law. And if you maintain this boat perfectly... I mean, not a single chip of paint out of order, not a single spot of rust on it, not a single squeaky door. If you maintain it perfectly, it will take you to the righteous shores and everything's going to be great for you. And you say, well, hey, I've got this boat. Hallelujah. And you notice these folks who are drowning, none of them are really looking to you for help. Sometimes they look to you for help, but most of the time they don't. And as you're, as you're considering their fate, you lean against the railing and it bends. You're like, what? whoa, whoa, uh oh. Uh-oh. I've just messed up the boat. And then you hear this doom, doom, doom. And you look around, and some of your family who like children who just like to break things for the sake of breaking things, they're kicking holes in the side of the boat. And you're like, what are you doing? We just got told we have to maintain this boat perfectly. Or else it won't take us to the shores of righteousness. And we're going to drown just like the rest of these sinners are already drowning. What are you doing? And as much as you try and tell them, stop kicking holes in the boat. They just look at you and keep kicking holes in the boat. Every once in a while, one of the, your family members gets up and tries to tell them how it should be. And starts shaking their finger at them. And call them a prophet. And, and the family listens to him for a little while and goes, yeah, we should stop kicking holes in the boat. And then they grab them and throw them overboard and start kicking holes in the boat again. And you're like looking around going, this thing is sinking. This boat is sinking. It's not going to take us to the shores of righteousness because we keep breaking the stupid thing. And not that the boat's stupid. We're stupid for breaking it. And you're frustrated with it. And the water's coming up. And your family doesn't seem to realize the water's coming up. It's up to their knees. The boat's so far down the water. But they're still looking at the other people drowning. They're like, hey, at least we've got the boat. We're not like them. You're like, yeah, but we're becoming like them. We're sinking. And just when you think hope is gone and, and, the, and the boat is going under, there's this guy that, that comes walking up, and he's actually walking on the water. You're like, what is up with this guy? And he tells you, this is what you need to do. You want to live? Yeah. But these knuckleheads here keep kicking holes in the boat. It's like, yeah, well, you've kicked some holes in the boat yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you got to do is you got to jump off the boat. Jump into the water, and then I will, I'll pull you up, and I'll teach you to walk on water. You're like, yeah, but if I jump in the water, it's sure death. I know the water's going to be death. I mean, look at these folks. They're going down left and right. And he says, trust me. And you kind of look at him, you're not so sure you can trust him, because he's got like seaweed hanging off him, and there's a couple bite marks on him. And you're like, mm, you don't look that great. And he's like, I've got this under control. Jump off the boat into the water, and I'll take your hand. Trust me. So you do. You jump off into sure death. You jump off into the water, and he's there. And what do you know? He reaches his hand out, pulls you up, and you're walking on the water. And you're like, hallelujah. I thought I was sure to die. But you pulled me up, and I'm walking on the water. He goes, yep. And it's not just for you. And you notice you have some other of your family members jumping off off the boat. They're abandoning the boat, jumping off into death. And he's pulling them up. And they're walking on the water too. And you're all clapping and hugging and and doing high fives with each other. Some of your family is stubbornly staying on the boat. And they're going down with it. But then something very strange to your mind happens. This guy turns around. He starts pulling up people that were never on the boat in the first place. He starts reaching down to these folks, and they're walking on the water, too. And you're celebrating. You're like, that is awesome. Look at all these folks walking on the water. But then one of your family members goes, "Nope, this is not okay. Before these people are allowed to walk on the water, they need to get into a boat. And that boat needs to sink out from under them, just like it did for us. And then they can jump in, and then they can be pulled up to walk on the water. Does that make sense to you? That's what they're asking these Gentiles to do, to go back under the law. Go back onto this law. Go back under this boat that we know is going to sink. That's what Paul's telling Peter. We as Jews know this isn't going to work. Why are we then trying to bring them back under it? It makes no sense at all. And that's his argument. Why would we do that? They're already dead. They're Gentile sinners. They don't need to figure out that they can't keep the law. They're already there. What they need is to put their faith in Christ. And then he goes on to say this, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. This is a tricky little part, but what he's saying is that, listen, if By abandoning the law and seeking my justification in Christ, it becomes, I'm aware, you know, I wouldn't abandon the law if I didn't understand that I was a sinner in need of a Savior in a different way than following the law. Does that mean that somehow Christ made me sin so that I could then come to him? It's like saying, we were given this boat to, to, to live in, Does the fact that we kicked holes in it, which led to us trusting this guy who can walk on water, does that mean the guy who walked on water made us kick holes in the boat? In other words, does Jesus make us sin so then he can then save us? And Paul's like, no, that's just dumb. You always have these little philosopher types like, wow, but did you think of this? And sometimes Paul's like, no. I think it's clear that God knew this was going to happen. And in my opinion, the reason why the Jews were given the law and the Gentiles weren't given the law is because as human beings, we needed to have an example that says we cannot be saved by rules and we cannot be saved by just doing our own thing. We all need a savior. We all need someone that takes this burden for us. And you can be a rule keeper and you're going to find it's not going to work. You can be a rule breaker and find that that's not going to work. You have to. We equally have to find someone that we can put our faith in and our hope in. And going back to this metaphor, we notice that this guy who walks on water—he has seaweed on him and he has some bite marks. He says, "You know, the reason why I have this is because I suffered the consequences of this boat sinking for you. He knew this boat was going to sink." God, the builder of all things, he knew this was going to sink, and so he prepared a way for that for the consequences of that boat sinking, which is death to be paid for, and it's paid for by me. I went down to the depths so you don't have to. I suffered the consequences so that you don't have to. And then the builder of all things raised me back to life, allows me to walk in the water so I can teach you to do the same. But you have to trust me. You have to trust the man who extends that hand to you and put your hand in the hand of the man that stilled the water and put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. And this is where Paul then comes to this very iconic scripture where he identifies himself with the very death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. But Christ lives in me. But what he's saying here is I walked away, I jumped off the law and onto Christ's death. And where Jesus went, I went. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the law, the the justice and the wrath of the law was fulfilled upon the cross of Christ. The cross is a kind of a, a crossing point of God's justice and God's mercy. The justice required of the law for lawbreakers was was put upon Christ. That's what the scripture means when it says that he became sin for us. It was put upon him. And he takes that burden upon himself so that by faith, we can look at his sacrifice, sacrifice and say, his sacrifice. By faith, I'm trusting that's my sacrifice. And that's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ, no longer live. We know that Paul wasn't literally crucified with Jesus but he sees himself as his, he's given it over himself, he stopped trusting the law and has put himself in trusting in what Jesus has done. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And look what he said, this is important. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we could, by law, or if we could, by works, attain righteousness, then God, Jesus Christ, didn't have to die for us. We would just have a lot of people that were going to hell, but we'd have a few people that maybe could be righteous enough if we could ever agree on what that looked like. But we don't have to be in that place because we can trust what God has already done through Jesus for our sake. And that's where faith comes in. You know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a history geek. I love the history stuff. I love archaeology. I love the things that prove the Bible. I like that kind of stuff. But there comes a point where we have to have faith. And the faith is what Jesus did upon the cross 2,000 years ago still affects our lives today. That's by faith we believe that. Because you can't. You can't hook yourself up to some kind of you know, thing, electric thing and say, now I believe in Jesus and watch some meter begin to shake. Some people would like that. That's sometimes what they say. Oh, you have to have these sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. You have to have some kind of show that it's happened. But that's really not what faith is. Faith is believing in these things that you can't necessarily see or put your hands on. It's a place of trust. And this comes back now how this all applies to us. Because the truth is, for many of us who are believers... We still have a little bit of a boat in the back of our head that we're relying on. We'll say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he died for me, but I'm going to do these good things just in case. Or I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he died for me, rose again. I put my trust in him, but I'm still going to follow certain rituals that I grew up with because I was told I have to follow these rituals in order to receive salvation. And those are, if you're in that place, you're in the Cross of Jesus Christ plus whatever that blank is for you. The cross of Jesus Christ plus following certain rituals. The cross of Jesus Christ plus following good works. Now the truth is, the scripture says we are meant for good works. You know, the scripture says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourself is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And the very next verse says this, For we are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ. So it's not as though we become believers and we shouldn't do anything good. It's just that we do the good because we've become more like Christ. Not because we're trying to appease Christ. Not because we're trying to earn it from God. And this is important because I know that in a lot of your minds, because it's also in my mind sometimes, the cross plus. The cross plus. You know, Jesus, just in case this whole faith thing needs a little oomph, let's not forget what I've given up in order to be your servant. That's the cross plus. And if we stay in those places, the cross plus, somewhere in the back of our minds, every time we're in those places, the cross plus something, the cross plus this, the cross plus that, then what we're doing is we're taking away from our trust in the cross, actually. We're taking taking away our trust in what Jesus Christ has done. And the truth is, a lot of you live under certain laws. Some of you live under the law of your family. You have certain expectations that have been put on you by your family. And I know this because we're an international church, and I've heard you guys discuss it. Sometimes you've discussed with me. Sometimes I've overheard it. Some of you come from families that success, what it means to be a good person, it has a lot to do with the works or the education or the job or the income that you manage to put into place. And in your mind as much as you want to say i'm trusting jesus you still have this thing going on that says but to really be considered worthy i've got to fulfill the expectations of my family or in order to be worthy i've got to fulfill the expectations of my societals around me or in order to be worthy i've got to fulfill my own expectations what i think is successful life is and all of those things are a sense of law which is taking your eyes from christ and back onto something else in order to find yourself righteous justified successful whatever word you want to give to it saved and all those things while it's good we are created for good works in christ which he has set aside before time for us to do but there's aren't those aren't the things that save us and that's what paul's talking about here the cross is enough. Now we're going to have some people baptized today. We don't, for example, at at, uh, IBCD or most Baptist churches, while we believe that believers' baptism is a step of obedience in growing as a disciple, we don't say that this is what saves you. This water is just water. It's not magic water. It's not blessed water. It's just water. Now, there's the power that is in it, is in the person's heart that's willing to submit themselves to this place of baptism. Because baptism represents a lot of things. It represents death, burial, and resurrection. This is why we do it through immersion. You've been buried with Christ, raised to new life. It represents, as scriptures talk about it, it represents unity. You know, the scripture says in in Romans chapter 6, and we'll read it before we do the baptism, that we have been, those of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. It's very much what Paul says here, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not like he literally was nailed to the cross with Christ, but by faith he has joined his life there. And that's what the symbol of baptism says. Those of you who have been baptized, you've been buried with him into baptism so that just as Christ was also raised from the dead, you'll also be raised. It also represents the unity that we are in the body of Christ and we've done this thing together. It represents the washing of sin, though you've been cleansed of your sin because of what Christ did, not because of this, but this is an outward symbol of that. Baptism is important. And we believe in this church that it is an important step of being a disciple because Jesus says... All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And then he tells us how. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then the promise is, and I will be with you always. But it's the cross that saves. It's the cross that saves. And we put our faith in the cross. Once we get onto the other side of things, We talked about last week. Sometimes there's disagreement about being baptized as an infant or being baptized as a believer. I will stand firmly on the side of being baptized as a believer, even though I was also baptized as an infant. But the point is, when it comes to salvation, it's not the cross plus baptism. It's the cross. And that's what Paul's trying to get across to Peter here. You don't have to to make the Gentiles become Jews ritually through circumcision for men before they can first receive the grace of God. It just doesn't make any sense because we know that the law is impossible to keep. Why are we insisting people come under the law knowing they're going to fail when the answer is given to them in Jesus Christ right now? So where are you? Where are you in your life? I think the thing that, I think the probably the take-home from this is that most of you here today don't have a Jewish background. Some of you might, but most of you don't. You wouldn't be here today if this argument hadn't taken place, because this argument cleared up this issue, and it's been in the scriptures, and it's part of the scriptures for over 2,000 years, because this is an important thing to understand. This is why Paul says... You know, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. He's not saying these things don't exist. But salvation is equally available to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Where are you? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the argument that took place between Paul and Peter, Lord, I thank you also for Peter's humility that uh, in Acts 15, we see that he goes back and he firmly stands on the side of Paul, where he could have just said, hey, I'm the chief apostle here. He didn't do that. There's a lot we can learn from both these guys. And Father, as we uh, consider where we're at today, I know. Given our various church backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, family backgrounds, I know that in the back of our minds, most of us have something that we think is our backup plan in case faith in you by itself isn't enough. And we may not come right out and say it as such. But Lord, I pray your spirit would be within each one of us and reveal it to us. What is the, what is the thing that we think is going to be the backup plan is it our good works is it the fact we followed certain rituals is it our ethnicity is it our culture lord may we see all these things that's what they are which is they're futile in bringing us to salvation you and you alone have made that possible and Lord, may we make it clear to the people around us who do have a tendency, very often in Germany anyways, to sort of equate salvation with being part of the state church in whatever form that is and tell them, it's not about that. It's about, do you put your trust in Jesus Christ? And may we be able to live in, by our, in our own lives that truth that we can live with freedom, we can live with hope, we can live with joy. It doesn't mean that we don't go through bad stuff, but we can live in a way where your nature and character is revealed in us, that we, in this sense, would glorify you. That our lives, our trust, like the trust of a child coming into the kingdom of God, would glorify you. People would see your character and nature of love and of grace and of hope and of judgment, but that you took care of that judgment upon yourself is revealed in our lives. And may we not get caught up in pointless arguments. Let's just keep our eyes on, may we keep our eyes on you. And Father, we do pray too that, you know, conflict is inevitable within the church body. Sometimes it can be, it can bear fruit. Sometimes it just bears division. And we do pray at IVCD and we pray for our daughter church in Essen as they're starting out. God, that you would protect us from our arguments that are just based upon our selfishness, our rebelliousness. And help us to be like iron that sharpens iron. That if we need to discuss it, we do so in a way that it bears fruit. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Your word is, is uh, just amazingly refreshing. when It just kind of shows the humanity of the people involved. How Peter himself wrote, man, sometimes Paul is hard to understand. But that we can benefit from one another. May we learn this as we walk together as your body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.